It's Monday, October 5th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me today, it's a Moser Monday. Jason Moser, good to see you. <laughs> hey, good to see you. Man, I, it, normally it's Merger Monday, but Moser Monday, man, I can nah, get behind that. <laughs> it's new branding. I'm testing it out. See how it goes. Uh, like we it. have got some entertainment business news. We are going to talk portfolio allocation strategies. But we're going to start with the war on cash. Earlier today, Venmo, which is the mobile payment service that is owned by PayPal, unveiled its first ever credit card. Jason, you know I'm a PayPal shareholder. You know I'm a fan of Venmo. Mm -hmm. And yet, when I saw this story, the one word question that popped into my head was, why? Like, why are they doing this? <laughs> you mean isn't, why? That why, isn't that why I'm using Venmo? I was going to say, you mean why from the physical card perspective, or why would you have a credit card from Venmo? I guess kind of both. I guess both. I, 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 all kidding aside, what what is the thinking here on Venmo's part? I mean, I, I, it's a fair question. I guess. I mean, let's remember that um, it's it's a Venmo credit card. Now, it is actually something that is backed by Synchrony uh, Bank, which is a longtime partner of PayPal's, and, it, and it's a Visa card. So those are all the players in the value chain there. Um, ultimately, you know, when we look at all of the things that PayPal is doing beyond just Venmo, but but when we look at what they're doing with Venmo too, it's it's really about driving daily use and engagement. And so the card is really another step in that direction. And um, it's it's not a surprise. I mean, we knew you know that they, they were going to be bringing this to market at some point. And so the idea generally is. Um, to to drive daily use of of Venmo's platform, whether at that's in the form of of a credit card or in the form of using your phone. Now, I mean, we we've you know we hear all the time sort of the well, do you want to pay with your phone or do you want to use a physical credit card? I mean, the friction is there regardless, right? You got to pull your phone out of your pocket or you got to pull your card out of your pocket. So using one or the other, I don't think is really um, you know that that much of a difference. But I, I do think that what they're doing with the card and what they're doing with Venmo in in general um, speaks to sort of that that tech drive there and, and specifically I'm talking about the QR code strategy that they have um, with the Venmo card they're gonna have the actual QR code um, on the card and and so with with you know Venmo for example like the QR code is just another way you can use your phone to scan um, a merchant's um, code so that you can then pay via your phone if you want um, and and so I, I think that when you when you look at what PayPal is doing with Venmo whether it's the card whether it's the QR code strategy it's really just all about driving uh, daily use and and so they've done a little bit of a They've tinkered around with the reward structure on this card a little bit, to where it's it's a little bit different than what you might find with typical cards. And so you have three percent cash back on the category in which you spend the most. Then you have two percent back on the second highest category, and then you have one percent back on all other purchases. So it's it's neat in in the sense that it gives every card holder an opportunity to take advantage of their individual spending behavior, right? I mean, with Amazon, for example, that Prime card really focuses it on Whole Foods purchases, for example, or Amazon purchases, and and so with Venmo's card, they're they're looking at this younger generation of consumers and understanding that you know they want to reward them just for really where they're spending their money, as opposed to just encouraging them to spend their money, you know, or use that card one place or another. And I, I do think that makes a lot of sense. Um, but between the card and what they're doing with the QR code strategy, I mean, it really is just a matter of driving daily use and engagement for a particular demographic. And certainly, Venmo is is keyed in. 
in on that young, younger demographics. I mean, I think it's a sensible move. Yeah, and I, I didn't mean to come off as I think it's a bad move. I, I, I think it's a sensible move. I, I guess I just look at it and think, okay, how, like, what does success look like? How much does this show up in PayPal's quarterly results? And it may, it may not be a big driver in terms of uh, new users or, or that sort of thing. I do see, however, how it could make Venmo even more sticky. Yeah, I, I think you, you made a very good point right there. And I think to, to answer your question, it, it is extremely incremental at this point. It, it is the economics of this are incremental, and, and management has acknowledged that. This, this is less about. Um, this is less about the bottom line, and it's more about really building out this uh, this this car, this financial relationship with Venmo and its users that 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 users feel comfortable with that they want to use um, on an ongoing basis. And so, I mean, you just look back to their uh, most recent quarter where they reported. I mean, obviously, very strong results for the business in general, but Venmo had a really strong quarter as well. Net uh, new ads were uh, very strong. They now have sixty million plus users in that platform and they grew the total payment volume by 52% to almost 37 billion dollars and so i mean this card if it doesn't exist is venmo still going to be successful yeah absolutely um but but it is something that they can add they can add another dynamic to the relationship give consumers uh one more way to participate to use that platform to benefit from the platform with that unique reward structure um you know they they look at this data where they they acknowledge that that 70% of people have health concerns right now about shopping in person and frankly it seems like that number should be a little bit higher um and and that that certainly goes towards the, the QR code strategy that they're using. Back in August, they had announced this partnership with CVS uh, to where now you can actually use your PayPal and Venmo QR card, uh, QR code in, in, in the store. And again, that's just that's that contactless style payment. And so it really is all going back to figuring out ways to make it contactless to, to you know, address the fact that, that people have concerns about uh, contact, about using cash, you know, figuring out new ways to do things. And I think the card, the QR code, those are all uh, pieces of that greater strategy to build out this, this new fintech sort of company that's just changing the way that money is moving around. Movie theater stocks are getting hammered today. Uh, Cineworld Group, which is the second largest movie theater chain in the world, announced it is closing its theaters in the U.S. and in the U.K. Uh, here in the U.S., it's Regal Cinemas. Uh, in the U.K., it's Cineworld. So, all told, we're talking about more than 650 theaters, roughly 45,000 employees who are going to be out of a job, and the stock is down 40%. And in sympathy, I guess you could say, uh, shares of AMC which is the largest movie theater chain in the world, down 10%. Cinemark down 15%. Uh, we've seen sort of this uh, drip, drip, drip of tentpole movies uh, having their release date pushed back. The latest James Bond movie, which was supposed to come out this past April, got pushed to November. And uh, over the weekend, it was announced it's getting pushed to next April. And it's, among other things, Jason, it is a reminder of how those big action tentpole movies drive this business. Oh, yeah. And I mean, it's not just the theaters that are really feeling the pain today, too, right? It's um, 
EPR Properties, which is um, that's a REIT that focuses on the entertainment um, arena in in general, but they have a lot of exposure to to movie theaters, and and certainly uh, EPR is feeling a little bit of that pain today as well, given given what we know um, is is playing out with the movie theaters. And you know, when you when you look at Cine World, I mean. It kind of the first thing the first thing it made me think of it's kind of like kind of like Pluto when Pluto was downgraded from planetary status like Cineworld is more like a dwarf planet now like this isn't this isn't a world anymore this is really a company that's just struggling to figure out how to survive at this point because they've got two problems they've got two really big problems they've got a supply problem and a demand problem and and like you noted with with the the actual releases having the content to get in those theaters that's one problem but then the other problem obviously the health concerns regarding the pain pandemic. I mean, people just don't want to go sit in a movie theater uh, like like we used to. And, and so, all of this is playing out um, on, on these theaters, big and small. And, and when you, you look at Cineworld's financials, I mean, they uh, are, are facing the same problems as everyone else. They're witnessing uh, revenue falling off of a cliff. They've got a slug of debt on the balance sheet, eight and a half billion dollars. Now, half of that is in lease liabilities, but that you know speaks to the to the weight that um, that that those theaters can can serve, right? That drag that they can serve uh, when when they're not being used. And, and a theater is just like a restaurant, is just like a retail store. It there are all of these high fixed costs in keeping those theaters open and paying for those leases, keeping them staffed and open. Um, and so, you need traffic to go through them. The more traffic that goes through, the more profitable they become. And, and that's great in good times, but in bad times, as we're seeing now, it just it, that profitability just vanishes. And I think the trouble, the trouble that they're facing um, is, is that, you know, when, when you start looking forward, and and you try to figure out exactly how people are going to be feeling about going to the movie theater when all of this stuff passes over. I mean, when when we finally turn the corner and, and, and the concerns for our for our health aren't aren't the same as they are today, are people gonna want to go back to the movie theaters like they did before? I mean, some will, no doubt. But for all of the time that passes while we're not going to those movie theaters. All of the time that those theaters are suffering, other forms of entertainment are are gaining, right? Other forms of entertainment are becoming more and more an option, a nice substitute for folks, whatever that may be, um, you know, all the way down to new ways of, of catching movies. And so we're seeing. We're seeing distributors figuring out new ways to get movies out there. We're seeing consumers figuring out new ways to actually watch movies. And all of a sudden, a year from now, and I mentioned this on the on, on Twitter earlier today, all of a sudden, you really have to be aware of that good enough risk in that like, hey, you know what? It's not the movie theater, but but I'm, I'm sitting at home. I'm eating a pizza. I'm watching a new movie. That That's good enough for me. And I'm okay with that. I don't need to get in my car and go to a movie theater. And, and so, all the more time that passes, I think the more difficult it becomes for these theaters to really um, get back to where they once were. And, and you know, un, 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 it, unfortunately, it feels like you know that we're we're going to be dealing with this certainly for the rest of this year. I mean, granted, we only have a couple months left, really a few months left. But I mean, you know, going into twenty twenty one, I mean, I mean, what does this look like when April or, or, or May comes around? I don't know. We don't know enough yet. But but when you look at Cine World itself, I mean, it's really Cine United States. I mean, seventy five percent of their revenue comes from here. So what's going on here really matters to this business. And right now, it's just not looking good. Yeah, and one of the thoughts I had when I was reading through this stuff this morning was 
remember when Warren Buffett bought uh, the Omaha World Herald? And oh, yeah. there was there was just sort of this like <laughs> it, 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 for someone who is so rational in his investing, it kind of seemed like he let nostalgia um, get the better of him. And you know what? He he can do whatever he wants with his money. Although he did sell it, he did sell the newspaper <laughs> earlier this year. Uh, but it, but it reminded me of that, and I just thought I, I think there is a possibility where some very wealthy person. At some point in the next year or two, just to, maybe not to buy um, AMC Holdings whole cloth, but I, it, it wouldn't surprise me if someone was just like, no, 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 I love movies and I, I want this to survive, and if it's if it's break even, that's all I care about. But but other than other than uh, sort of uh, a very rich angel coming in. Given everything you just laid out with the business, I mean, I, I, I like how you put it. I mean, they, it's not just a demand; it's not just a supply problem; it's a demand problem as well. Well, I mean, hey, listen. Apparently, Jeffrey Katzenberg's got some pretty deep pockets. I mean, Chris, are you thinking what I'm thinking? <sighs> Quibby theaters. I mean, it just rolls right off the tongue, doesn't it? Quibby theaters. Hey, it's a possibility. Anything is possible in 2020. Uh, our email address is marketfoolery at fool.com. We got a note from Colin in Arizona who writes, I'm 25 years old, and since I was 19, I've invested between $300 and $500 a month in a low-cost index fund. Let me just stop right there and say, <laughs> that's fantastic. Like, yes. Like, we'll get to Colin's question in a second, but Colin, way to go. Absolutely, man. <laughs> way to go. Uh, he continues, however, I've recently found a new lower cost and higher yielding index fund that I would like to move the invested capital into. Would you suggest selling the existing p uh, position for cash and then moving the capital into the new fund uh, in one buy order? Or is Losing the benefit of dollar cost averaging from periodic monthly investments, something to consider when rebalancing portfolios. Appreciate your help very much with this question, as I am sure this situation will pop up many more times in my future. Jason, I, I feel like Colin answered his own question with that last line. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, I think I'm going to keep doing this. And so, anyway, I, I have my thoughts, but what are yours? Yeah, I mean, I just like you said, I mean, from, from 19 to 25, that kind of behavior i mean that's just that, that that just congratulations first and foremost that's just amazing that's awesome from so many so many different angles and and, and i think um Without knowing the fund that you're considering, without knowing your gains that you're looking at, because I'm assuming you know over six years or so, you, you definitely are sitting on some some pretty nice gains there. Um, I, I I so I I always default. My my default is to avoid selling if I don't have to. That that's I try to figure out. Okay, what do I need to sell? If I don't need to sell anything, then I typically you know I'm not going to sell it unless the business has uh, been impaired, the thesis has changed. Or uh, you know, I just feel like there's a better place for that money. But it's it sounds like in this case that um, you know the three the three to five hundred dollars per month, if that can continue, I think my first move would just be to to 
start diverting that money into the new fund and say, okay, you've got this one fund that you've been investing in over the last six years. Now let's start diversifying a little bit and putting some money into another fund and, and keep that ball rolling. Because there's no doubt you're, you're witnessing some compounding gains that, that exist there over, over the course of that time. And, and I, I, you, know, you, you always want to be aware of that. And, and furthermore, depending on what kind of account this is held in, if it is a, if it is a, a, a non-tax friendly account, then you will have a tax bill to consider, uh, most likely, if you do sell. So I think my first move would be to try to figure out, do I need to sell? If I don't need to sell, um, then then maybe don't, or maybe take it slowly, or you know maybe divert some of that money away and, and then put it into the new fund. Well, and just back of the envelope math, without factoring in any gains over the last six years, Imagine the prospect of you're 25. Let's just say conservatively, you've got $25,000 in a low-cost index fund, and then you just decide, see in 30 years, I'm yeah. going to leave this thing. I'm going to go start investing in other ways, in other funds. And we look, we work with people who like to invest in multiple indices, put a little in the QQQ, put, you know, have that S&P 500 uh, low-cost fund as sort sure. of your base. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I sort of had the same thought, like, I, I really try to avoid selling unless I really need to. And I don't know, it doesn't sound like he needs to. Maybe not. I mean, it, it 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 doesn't sound like the thesis here is busted by any means. It sounds like it sounds like you found a fund that has lower cost and, and what you say higher yielding. Um, you know, if if you unload everything and move it into that new fund, there's always you always run the risk of, well, maybe that fund ends up not working out as well as you think it might. I mean, we are very fallible as investors. We make lots of mistakes, and we have to admit that and understand that. Um, so rather than I, you know, I mean, it, it, I, at that age, I know it. it you want you want to do something, right? You feel like you buy, sell, do something, and, and a lot of the best investing is just by doing nothing. It's it's by literally just putting that money to work and then getting on with life. And so, in a lot of cases, I've seen that work out really well. Um, so yeah, I, I think if I if I could avoid selling, I would. And the caveat there is that if you feel like the money in this fund currently, I mean, if you feel like this investment thesis has changed, if there's if there's something that has changed that that you know, makes you not want to be invested in that fund anymore. That's something to consider as well. I mean, it's just, there, there are a lot of considerations, but I, I just go back to my, my default is just, I, I don't sell if I don't have to. Jason Moser, thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery, the show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.